Hello and welcome to Film Festival Reviews, the place for independent filmmakers stop by and listen to what's happening on the roads of independent films and filmmaking. This is Christina Kotlar and today starts the 57th annual Berlin International Film Festival. 10 days of films and film market. This is a big one in Europe, but I'm not getting out there because I have just gotten back from Sundance Film Festival and I have several events that will be going on throughout the next week and into the weekend. On Thursday, February 15th, the New York Women in Film and Television Documentary Committee presents a case study on the making of the Dixie Chicks Shut Up and Sing with Academy Award-winning director Barbara Koppel. I'll be the host and moderator at this event, and we'll get an inside look at what it was like to direct this political hot potato that is now a critically acclaimed documentary feature. On Sunday, February 11th, Grammy Award will be televised and the Dixie Chicks, the biggest selling female group in history, are nominated for five Grammys. Uh, Should be interesting uh, this event at the National Arts Club. Check it out at nywift.org. The next day, the very next day, early morning, I'm off to Big Sky Documentary Film Festival in Missoula, Montana. And this is a festival that I've heard about and talked about more than once that has really springboarded into a big fourth annual festival with 100 films from 32 countries, including 30 world and North American premieres. I'm really looking forward to this festival that highlights films made about the American West. It just goes hand in hand with uh, where I've just been and it starts Thursday, February 15th to the 21st. Check out filmfestivalreviews.com for press releases that were sent out to me and any other information about how I plan to festival uh, will be on the site here. So um, another recent announcement about a film festival I have been to and is coming up April 11th through the 15th. Sonoma Valley Film Festival announces its opening night film, kicking off this 10th annual film festival. After the Wedding has been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Foreign Film and a second film, a short, Recycled Life, has also been nominated for an Oscar. So this film festival set in the heart of wine country, I've been there and it's beautiful. And it's fast becoming a player, a major player as a festival for film acquisitions. And speaking of short films, recently from Sundance, director Sophie Bart's film Happiness can now be experienced after its film festival run by downloading it off of iTunes. This is a huge advancement for filmmakers whose short films usually wind up forgotten even after a successful film festival run. Sometimes they win a festival award and you never get to see these short films again. So a week after Sundance, Happiness was the number one downloaded short film. And here's my conversation with Sophie. From her philosophical point of view on short filmmaking to strategies for the filmmakers. She's one of the pioneers making her way in this indie filmmaking world. And I see that Sundance is still staking its claim as a visionary and innovator in American indie filmmaking and promoting. 
Getting short films on iTunes is making it a place to catch new filmmakers at their most energetic and inspired moments. It's inspiring to me because listening to Sophie is like listening to my inner voice. Alright, here we go. Enjoy the show. First of all, I just want to congratulate you for having your short film happiness at Sundance. I think there were 4,000 submissions and you were one of the selected for the shorts program. And so congratulations Thank on you. that. Uh, was that your first time in Sundance, you know, with yes, the film? Yes, I, I came last year to support Half Nelson because Andre Barrett shot Half Nelson. So I just came with the team to support, but it, it's the first time I had a short in competition, so I was really happy. And you were also in the Sundance Lab. Were you developing this script, or you had the script? You had the script a while. Yeah, I've been working on the script for one year, and I submitted last year to the lab and didn't get in, and I needed more work. And in the meantime, the script won at the, the Nantucket Festival. They have this Showtime Tony Cox Award, and I won the screenplay competition, and I did some more work on the on the on the script, and I think. At that time, it was ready to get in. But when you get in the lab, it's also not with a final draft. You go there to continue working and get advice in the script. So it's at a late stage of development of the script, but it's not yet ready. When did you start working on the short film, Happiness? How did that uh, get started? Happiness, I did it as a sort of distraction from writing. I was. Uh, writing that screenplay and I needed to take a break and do something funny to change my mind a little bit. Uh, so I just wrote it in one day and we shot it in uh, March for two days, uh, two days and a half, uh, in Boston and in New York with Andre. I thought it was really funny the way you opened it up or having it situated in a very absurd place. It was the, the condom factory. Is that something that you just decided to get something out there first to start it off and really hook somebody up. I mean, what made you choose that? <laughs> <laughs> I, actually, it's, um, it's two things. I was looking, I had this first idea of writing a story about a box of happiness, something extremely abstract, but to ground the character in something very material, I had to find an activity for her that was really absurd and very boring and a little bit cruel. Uh, and I had seen a picture that was uh, completely obsessed me. It was a black and white picture of a Polish factory worker working in a condom factory and with a very old machine. And I did research and this factory was in New Jersey but it had been destroyed uh, five years ago. And so I could never find this machine. It was a machine made of uh, steel mandrels. It was extremely, extremely strange to see this woman staring at this machine and I started thinking, what is going on in the head of that woman? Uh, she was the same age than the character in the short. What is she thinking all day long, looking at these condoms being tested and being in her 60s? And her gaze looks so melancholic and so sad that I tried to imagine what was the life of that woman, of this factory worker. And so I mixed that with the idea that I wanted to do something about happiness and the abstraction of happiness. And so that's how the short came. And how did you find uh, the the actress for this? Because she was perfect in the part. Yeah, Elzbieta is a really. This was an amazing luck I had. I was looking for a Russian actress. Uh, I wanted to do something in Russian or Ukrainian, 
and a friend of mine who is um, a photographer for Newsweek, a Polish friend, told me that Elzbieta was used to be the muse of Andrzej Vajda and this fantastic actress in the 60s in Poland. And so I went to Kim's and I rented uh, all the movies I found. <laughs> and, and she was really amazingly talented actress. Uh, but then she moved to the US and I think she concentrated on theater mainly. So that's why she had been seen really in movies lately. But she's a total genius. I learned in two days with her more than in six months <laughs> uh, watching other movies. So yeah, I think she makes the movie. Basically, it's her face. You know, you can watch her reading the newspaper. You, she she has such a presence. I mean, the vibration of her expressions and her gaze is so intense that I think she completely makes the movie. Do you think doing the research and you know seeing the films that she was in that you made some of adjustments in your script to find some of those characters that you saw that she portrayed? Yeah, I saw her in Everything is for Sale from Andrei Vajda. There are very long scenes in that movie that are almost silent. And I don't know, something of the, the, the mood and the feeling was so strong that I think it inspired me to make the movie as, with as little dialogue as possible. And ideally, I wanted to make it a complete silent movie and just have the presence of that woman. But then it was difficult to have people understand that she was really buying this box of happiness and it would, could get a little bit too abstract. So yeah, I added a little bit of dialogue. But I think seeing her on the, the earlier movies made me want to have her, only her presence. Um, because she doesn't need to talk, she's just by herself, she's so strong that you can just be hypnotized by her on screen. <laughs> I loved it and I know the audience did also because I saw it with the audiences. It's really interesting to see people's reactions, especially in certain scenes. And I think one of the things that I really like were the shoes <laughs> and what to do with that box. And as you say, some people are like, what's in the box? What was in it? You're pretty tired of answering that question. So I was glad you said, don't ask me that question because that's not what the movie's about. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's funny because people, I think it's very linked to America that people can't deal with abstraction. They need things to be explicit, tangible and they can't deal with symbolism at all. A lot of people, a lot of people can, because I got many emails since the movie is on iTunes now, and it's doing extremely well, and I'm getting emails from all over the world, and also from American people that say they completely loved it, and they got it immediately. But other people still ask me what is in the box, <laughs> and you just want to tell them, play with your imagination, what is happiness? You know, I can't tell you what happiness is, you know, it's an idea, it's an abstraction. And I think it bothers a lot of people that they can't put a word on it or put, you know, see it visually or... So this, this was funny to travel with the movie and have. I had a lot of this question at the Hamptons Film Festival where... <laughs> and it's also an audience of very wealthy people and you expect them to have a little bit more of a sense of abstraction and they really wanted to know, you know, what is it? What is in the box? <laughs> I think maybe because of these game shows, you know, that people have to guess or they have to take a risk and, and pick the box or pick the door. Mm -hmm. or, you know, that's something that's been going on in this country a really long time. but. Uh, the other thing that I remember, you, you said that Elisabetta said or something, that if someone gave me happiness, I wouldn't know what to do with it. I love that line. Yeah. I think that's a Russian or Eastern European thing, you know? It's the idea that happiness is a little bit like freedom. It's something that is, for some people, I think for the Russian soul or the, the Eastern European soul, it's, uh, it's overwhelming. 
happiness would be overwhelming because it's a culture of melancholy. You know, people develop melancholy and nostalgia and, the, and longing, and, and it's part of the poetry of the life I feel in Eastern Europe. From the, the little experience I had in Ukraine and in Russia this summer, I feel people just like to be surrounded by melancholia more than you know the direct feeling of happiness that is inaccessible and they wouldn't know what to do if they were completely happy. <laughs> and it's beautiful, I think it's an amazing... And that's why it's so funny to show the movie in the US, because people feel that happiness is something very immediate, and I think they confuse between ephemeral things such as joy or pleasure, and it's very different from what happiness is. And happiness is intangible. It's something you can never. The moment you will have it, you almost lose it. You know, it's uh, so it's, it's fleeting. It's, exactly. You know, people want to hang on to it before it just disappears. Yeah. They. Think it's, 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 I think there's a lot of confusion here between you know in, in philosophical terms between what is desire and will. You know, they're a little bit mixed up with really what is desire. Once you desire something, and the moment you can get it, this desire vanishes. And it's not by the accumulation of more objects or more material things that you're going to reach happiness. You will never reach it. So when, once you start playing in that territory, it starts to be really, really funny. Um, you know, I had like I was watching at the, on the iTunes. They had uh, little people were putting their comments, and some people say they love it, and they think it was uh, very poetic, very funny. And there is one person saying. I feel very stupid because after that movie, I really, really didn't understand what was in the, that box and I really needed to see it, that's why I don't like the movie. <laughs> so it's part of this, you know. And I think maybe Europeans have been growing up so much in the Greek mythology. We grew up with the Pandora box myth, with all these tales when we were kids about boxes and mysteries that people just naturally deal with it, with the mystery of a box. Because, you know, the Pandora myth is one of the myths that when we were six years old, we were told that hope was in that box. And so I think it's a, it's a different approach, but it's funny. I so like that approach because, you know, I like boxes. I think I use that idea of putting things in a box. If you let it out, you can't put it back in. Yeah. Whatever you let yeah. out. Yeah. You know, I think it's a woman thing. <laughs> it's true. Women are obsessed with boxes. And a lot of women collect boxes. There is a whole psychoanalytic thing behind the boxes, I oh, think. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I like a wrapped box. So this is the first time that Sundance is doing this with iTunes. Yes. And they're putting yeah, the films on. Yeah. So it's kind of an experiment. They're doing a lot of things now. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's incredible how they're pushing. At the beginning, I was a little bit scared to have the movie just being shown on iTunes. And I thought no one would ever download the movie. And then it's been the number one on the iTunes Sundancing for a week. <laughs> oh, congratulations. Yeah, it's it, wonderful. It's been doing really well. Now I think it's number two with Death of the Tin Man. Where I saw that one also, and, that was pretty funny. And so yeah, it's very surprising. The great thing for young filmmakers is that you're directly in contact with the audience. They answer to you, they send you emails, so you know exactly how people react and it's fantastic. You don't have the filter of a festival where very few people can attend the festival. So it's a platform that is really amazing. Now this was a big festival, there were 50,000 people here, but you're right, when you go to certain festivals, after that you have to take it out somewhere to the main audience, and here is a very interesting way, I mean it's a very new way, so yeah. you're being a pioneer here. No, I think the chance they're giving us at Sundance and the way they're pushing short films is really truly unbelievable. I've never seen, I've been to a lot of festivals, I've never seen a festival where, first of all, the, sc the screenings are packed, 
they're sold out for shorts. I, I never saw that. The first screening was at 8 in the morning and it was packed. <laughs> I, I, I would expect no one would show up for shorts at 8 in the morning, you know, and, and it, that's, that's really amazing. The publicity they do and how they push you as a filmmaker, it's truly remarkable. So this is great, and then giving us the opportunity to show on iTunes is also something that you're a little bit reluctant at the beginning because you know, you want to, to protect your movie so much and it's almost a sacred thing to go and see it in the darkness on the big screen. But then I think you have to let go and just, it's more important to have the maximum number of people watching your work and reacting to it and like it or not like it for you to improve as a filmmaker. And also to feel your, your work is there, it's seen. You know, there is no point to make a short that's going to be on a shelf for just after the festivals. So I think that's great. Were you surprised, or I'm sure delighted, when you your short film to yeah. be uh, screened in Sundance? When did you find out, or, or how did you react they, to that? Uh, they called me. Actually, it was really amazing because I was very nervous about the Sundance Lab. I was waiting all week for the Sundance Lab, and I was thinking, okay, if I can get one thing, it's the Sundance Lab. The short, it's okay if it doesn't get in. <laughs> And then I got first the call for the short, so I was really, really happy and still very nervous to hear from the lab because I'm putting all the efforts on the feature film right now. But of course, for the short, it's giving a second life. I mean, it's been already in 22 festivals before Sundance, so I thought, you know, if it's not a premiere, it's going to be difficult to get in Sundance, but they're so open-minded that if they like a movie, they will take you even if you've been showing to other festivals. So it's, it gave a second life to the movie completely. Uh, because I was almost, you know, at the end of the life of that movie. I think, okay, it's been showing a lot. I'm not going to promote it more, do more work to show it around. And then Sundance gives it this second, second chance. So I was really happy. Tell me about the Sundance Writers Lab. So this, <laughs> this is the best experience of... Uh, it sounds very exciting. How many were in the lab? We're 12. And uh, the diversity of um, fellows was completely amazing. There were people from South Africa, Argentina, Israel, one American who's going to shoot in Armenia, uh, and then there were three Americans that are thinking to shoot in, in the U.S. But the diversity, the ge geographical diversity was really great. And the, the people that were selected had a human quality. And I think they're going to stay friends. We're going to stay friends for... It's not only a lab that you go for a week and then go back. You know, you really have very, very strong emotional intimate bond after a week because it works almost as a therapy. You know, they go so deep into your where you're hiding, where you're trying not to build a character or flesh out the character because you're hiding something of yourself behind that character. And I think they're, they've been doing that for so many years that they know exactly where to press and which button to make you feel that you're not sincere at, at some point in your script. And the other fellows are going through the same experience. So it's almost a cathartic experience, you know, after a week you feel very, very close to all these people. And yeah, it was very emotional, people were crying at the end. <laughs> it's almost like summer camp when you're a kid, you know, you, and I think writers are very emotional. So. And, and you deal all year long with the loneliness of a room, you're writing alone in a room and you have no one to share your work with, you only have your judgment. And then suddenly you're exposed to all those people giving you advice and doing it of completely dis in a disinterested, generous way, so it's very touching. I know I had a, a similar experience at the Santa Fe screenwriters going on there, and you said, how many people uh, apply for this? I don't know, I think they have thousands of uh, scripts, and uh, at the end I think they have around 700 or 600 scripts that they're 
going through and then they take 12 so and there are two labs one in January and one in June twice a year so you were here for two weeks and then you stayed for the, the Sundance festival yeah the lab is one week and oh then, the lab yeah, is one week and then okay. I stayed for the festival for the short so it was a Sundance <laughs> intense year experience for, yeah. for you uh, how how did you get started with all of this? Where is your training from? Uh, I studied, I went to Columbia University to study, first I wanted to do documentaries and international affairs. So I did SIPA, the School of International and Public Affairs. And, and after the first semester, I started taking classes at the film school. And I had this amazing professor, David Sterritt, who gave a class on Bergman and the French New Wave. And I think when I saw Persona and uh, Vivre sa vie, the Jean-Luc Godard movie, I had a, something happen <laughs> in my stomach and I thought I have to try to do fiction because it's so powerful and so poetic and so intense. I don't know, something was so great in, in that class and the, the possibilities that, that this class opened that I went to see the dean and I asked if I could take as many classes as I could in the film division and they were fine with it. So I took maybe 10 classes at the film school. And I started wanting to make shorts, and I made two documentaries, one in Yemen about uh, women literacy program for women uh, for the UNICEF. Uh, that's how I met Andrei Parekh, who's my life and creative partner. And then we did a short in Ukraine, and then we did Happiness, and, and I've been working on the future. Uh, we want to shoot in Russia and in New York. And he so also shot Half Nelson. He yeah. shot seven features uh, right now. But Hat Nelson is the one that had the most exposure and most success. Um, but yeah, it's <laughs> amazing work. The other thing that I found was pretty amazing in Sundance is that there were, I think, ten films from filmmakers who went to Columbia University. Yeah, this year was, uh, they couldn't believe it was complete Columbia year. They had, uh, I think it's more than ten, I think they had nineteen films feature documentaries and shorts of people, not all from the film school, but I think people involved with Columbia University. And they won awards for Grace is Gone and Padre Nuestro is also from Columbia. So it was a total Columbia year. But I was talking to the programmers and they say it's total coincidence. They're selecting all the shorts. They had 10 shorts, I think. And then they looked which short was coming from which school, and they saw by <laughs> it's an exceptional year. And, you know, it, yeah. it was good quality stuff. I saw some wonderful films. The style was very yeah. different. You couldn't say they're all coming from the same school. No, I had no idea until the very end. Now, I was there from Monday. I didn't get to see any films. By Tuesday, I've seen four films. Yeah. And, and I saw a lot of films made by women in this film festival. Well, what were some of the films that you really uh, thought Well, were? I loved Red Road. I loved uh, a Norwegian movie also that was very amazingly shot um, uh, called Reprise. I didn't see that, no. Really fantastic. I've seen it twice. <laughs> really beautiful. It's not really plot-oriented. It was just about the two characters and most of the film is about the mood and the feeling and what did I see that? Like, I, uh, Red Road and Reprise were the two movies that I liked the most. And also I saw the Fran this French movie, uh, Blame It on Fidel. I wanted to see that one. A really nice movie, also very cinematic and very well shot. But tell me about your project, your, your feature film that you were working on and how it's progressing. And so the, 
The script is almost the last stage of development. I have to finish it by March. Um, it's a very surreal story about a soul storage in New York where people can freeze their souls and be soulless. So it's this actor who is uh, struggling with um, the role of Uncle Vanya in the Chekhov play. And the role is so heavy and it's about all the heaviness, you know, of the Russian soul and all this, that he decides to store and uh, freeze his soul. And he becomes a soulless actor. And then his soul gets stolen by the Russian mafia and he has to go to Russia, get back his soul that an untalented actress stole. <laughs> so it's very surreal. Uh, a kind of black humor comedy, but it has a lot of melancholy too. Uh, so when I went to the lab with that project, the idea was to... I think I'm better at mood and feeling than at structure. So the, the lab was very good to get me back into working on the plot and like having developing the characters a little bit more. But the, the, there is like a, a general uh, consensus about where to take the script to improve it. And so I'm going to integrate all this uh, this month and finish the script by uh, mid-March. And hopefully we'll be shooting sometime next fall. Was it hard to uh, get that cultural thing for the American audience to be attracted to your films? Are you trying to create a piece so that the audience will then discover something other than what Americans are usually yeah, used to? Yeah, I think the moment you write just for an audience, you lose yourself. Because you can never predict. That's what studio do. The studio try to make the same formula again and again and again because they think that's what the audience like. But they don't know what the audience like because it's unpredictable. They're human beings and I think the audience is much smarter than the industry thinks. You know, you don't have to level down emotions, you don't have to make things accessible because it doesn't mean anything. I think if you're doing... The only thing you learn, and also I learned that from the lab, and it's honesty. If you do something with sincerity, honesty, and you really put your guts in the emotions or in the movie you're trying to do, some will relate to it because sincerity is contagious. If you're not sincere and you're lying, I think people will not react to your movie. But you can't think in those terms. You can't think what is the audience going to like because then you start doing McDonald's. You start selling junk food, you know. Right. So you have to have an integrity and do something that I think is very strong and necessary for you in, for your emotions and express it and then see how people react to it. Hopefully they like it. So the audience, they're pretty savvy about these films. Yeah, uh, they are much more sophisticated than we tend to think. It's because people are fed with the same generic thing. And they're so, like in the mainstream industry, there is so little diversity that then they think, oh, that's what people like. But I think it's true. When you go to Sunland and you see 50,000 people go, they wait in the cold at 8 in the morning to get into a movie on a wait list with a ticket with a number 150, and they're still waiting. I mean, there, there is a passion, and they're, they're expecting, you know, they have so much enthusiasm. When you, when you see how the audience react, how they ask questions, they stay for the Q&As, I think there's really, truly something magic about the ritual of cinema. And I don't think it's dying. I think it's there only assassinations. There is no death of cinema. Like some people are slowly assassinating cinema by doing very commercial and interesting things. But then there's all these people resisting that and making very interesting movies. 
You know, for happiness, I thought really, I thought I would not get into any festival because the story was so crazy and the, the idea was so weird. And then it got in almost all the festivals I sent it to, but really, I was not imagining at all. So you never know, it's totally unpredictable. Life is like this, and you have to play with the. You have to be ready for it, too. You have to take it too seriously, too. I mean, if a short doesn't work, do the second one and the third one. And the first short I did didn't work that well, you know, it was too ambitious, just too much of a production. And I decided to do happiness, taking the opposite of everything I did for the first short. Make it simple, make it as cheap as possible, just one actor, one location or two, and it worked. But then, I don't know, maybe the third film would not work, you know, it's... Uh, and I think it's just like keep doing it and uh, doing as cheap as possible. With, there is, it's ridiculous to put $40,000 in shorts. People do that. You can make a short for $2,000 and concentrate on the aesthetics and the performance. So the other strategy is take very good theater actors, people that, have, that you can learn from. And then that's what I did with Happiness. I learned so much from this actress and I think she's making the movie almost. You know, as a young director, you learn the craft of this person. And also, it's this thing like you have to know the motive. If you're doing a short just to get into Sundance, that's the wrong reason why you're making shorts. You have to make shorts and you have to love the format. I mean, if you make a short, it's because you think shorts by themselves are not trailers to make a feature film. The shorts should be respected. Like in literature, you have short stories and there are formats that some writers excel in and are really creating something new. And that's what you have to do. A short shouldn't be just an excuse to go and have fun in a festival because then you're betraying the essence of what filmmaking is. So that's where the sincerity is. Think, do a short when you really, really think, oh, this idea should be executed. And by itself, even if it doesn't get into any festival, it's a beautiful idea. It's something that should be said or should be expressed. If not, there is no point. And you see a lot of this here that people just want to produce. It's all about production. Like They're so anxious to have something out there and to get the recognition. The recognition doesn't matter if inside of you it's not true. It's a kind of illusion. It, it doesn't mean anything because people forget about it. And so I think it's inside of you. And that's when I think programmers see 4,000 movies and they see the movies that resonate with a little bit of truth and the movies are just there to show off or to try to get in. And that's where you will never get in. <laughs> so. You know, also Sundance is great, but they also, like, people start to call themselves directors and writers, and, and what is the real work behind, you know, it's very, I don't know, it's, uh, there is a lot of ego and a lot of narcissism involved. And I think you have to be, like, very humble and respect the medium, that there is a history of cinema. And that I'm looking forward to seeing your next film. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very excited about that, and uh, I like your point of view about things, especially the younger filmmakers. And you're right, they come out and they want to make it big. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, it's to really study the craft. Yeah, I think simplicity and sincerity always pays on the long term. Uh, I think it's an attitude towards life to be very humble about it and like, accept to learn from it. So, again, congratulations and Thanks. thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. This was great. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Okay, there you have it. Didn't I say she sounds like my inner voice? The conscience of good advice. I should listen to my inner voice more closely. If you listen closely enough, you could also hear the steam pipes working hard. It was pretty cold that day, and while it's still cold here, the film festival season will be heating up. 
I'm looking forward to getting this together and if there's anything you want to hear about, let me know. Check it out at filmfestivalreviews.com. Until then, thanks for listening.